Hi, I'm George, and this is Naughty by Nurture. According to many of our faithful listeners and other people who saw Megan's Twitter poll, the topic that people wanted us most to discuss next was dissociation. Hey, Megan. Yeah. What is dissociation? (laughs) That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So I think about dissociation and talk about it in ways that are probably pretty different from how most people have heard it discussed before. And I think it's usually discussed in terms of symptoms of PTSD. But I think about dissociation as a more global set of psychological experiences. So including both the distressing and and quote-unquote pathological versions of it, but also the more normative experiences, the the shit we experience in our daily life that that can be conceptualized as dissociative. And so the APA defines it as the disruption of the usually integrated functions of consciousness, memory, identity, or perceptions of the environment. And so from that, you can tell it's a pretty broad definition, right? Yeah, that seems like it would encompass a lot of seemingly unrelated psychological phenomena. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's what's the unifying principle there? Yeah, so I think uh, some helpful context is to think about the mind as a complex system. So consciousness, identity, personality, perception, and awareness of bodily sensations they can all be conceptualized as like emergent phenomena of separate but integrated processes and they are constantly interacting at different levels to produce a sense of unity so under normal circumstances or more typical circumstances these processes work together in like an apparently seamless manner resulting in in a sort of cohesive sense of self or reality. So dissociation then is experienced as disruptions in those systems or more fragmented experiences. So what distinguishes, I guess, because what you're talking about is basically your aware, your conscious awareness, not holistically integrating all the different ways that we might consider ourselves uh, self-aware or conscious at the same time. You know, and this this would encompass everything from, like, losing track of time while you're working on something to, you know, just complete disconnection from reality and sort of stepping outside yourself. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question is, what's the threshold there for when we would call something dissociative? Because right. it seems like there's this, you know, this this def- this definition makes sense, but it also encompasses a lot of things that people would just think are normal, mm-hmm. right? Or even have positive connotations, like we've talked about, like like a child playing, like like real immersive imaginative play. Or, yeah, like you know, the like flow of someone before. who's working really hard. Yeah, right. Or a really universal experience, like I have talked about, I think, on a previous episode, where, I mean, the feeling of getting swept up in a movie. You know, you're sitting mm-hmm. in a movie theater, and you are no longer aware of your physical presence sitting in a seat in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just just the basic fact of, like, looking up and realizing time has passed and not knowing where right. it's gone. You know, right. something like, 
you know, being lost in a really interesting conversation with someone you like can have that effect. Uh, but the word dissociative, the word dissociation has kind of, I think, an almost inherently pathological connotation mm-hmm. in the way people use it. Certainly it has clinical implications. Yeah. And that, again, it comes back to how it's conceptualized and defined. And I would consider all of those things to be dissociative to some degree. I don't think I don't think of dissociation as inherently pathological. Um, there can be some really useful or really positive impacts of it, right? So like a flow state, for example, where you're lost in the task or you're sucked into uh, whatever activity, art, sports, whatever. Um, but you don't really have the same sense of self or time or... And, and through the definition that I'm using, that is a dissociative experience. It's just, it's just not a pathological one. It's not one that's causing distress. It's not one that's necessarily interfering with your ability to to function or to enjoy your life. So I think I think the way that it is typically discussed is in a clinical sense when there is distress that accompanies it. So the most common experiences of dissociation that are discussed are, are things like depersonalization and derealization or identity confusion. So like depersonalization, like losing contact with your sense of self, maybe feeling like you're a robot or you don't know who you are. Or derealization being like feeling like you're in a movie or that your world is surreal or there's something that's not right and it's all sort of fake. And then there's the sort of most extreme forms with like identity disruption, right? So dissociative identity disorder, otherwise known as multiple personality disorder, that's also a a dissociative process. It's a disruption in your sense of identity like yeah. a, a fragmenting of it. And so to to what you're saying, I think it's really important to have a more global sense of what dissociation is and how it manifests and how it's actually a pretty normal process um, right. so that we can both better understand the clinical manifestations of it, the ones that are distressing for people, but also recognizing that it's it's not something that is inherent to defective minds right it's not it's not something that damaged minds do it's something you know i mean except insofar as every human mind is defective and damaged yes (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) well do you feel do you feel like this is something that i I mean i i'm sure that this isn't intentional really on the part of the profession of psychology but i feel like one of the things we've talked about is the way that that a diagnosis is often sort of weaponized or Mm -hmm. or used as a way to that it isn't always helpful right it isn't always something that benefits the person being diagnosed and Mm -hmm. do you feel like there's there's value in broadening this idea of dissociation so so that rather than just being clinical diagnosis it is a way to articulate a very widely felt and and known human state mm-hmm. of mental being and, and and it's you know only when it is sort of hurting someone in these very specific ways that 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 needs to be addressed rather than yeah. sort of writing off the whole the whole thing yeah as, i don't know 
Well, I think there are pros and cons to it. Yeah. I think there's there's definitely utility in keeping a, a more concise and, and more sort of narrow concept in terms of just specificity. Um, yeah. I mean, what's sort of interesting to me about it is that, that we've, we're sort of at this point where we don't really have a, a word culturally for the, the broader way of thinking about this phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Well, it's like, also, um, I think a big part of it is that there's sort of this disincentive to categorize uh, things which uh, basically create traits that are desirable under capitalism with things that are undesirable under capitalism, even if they're sort of governed by the same processes. Right. And I think dissociation is a big part of that. One of the things that I think about a lot is that, you know, the the concept of flow, right, uh, where you're just completely immersed in a task, whether it be playing a game or doing something or, uh, you know, engaging in a creative project or programming a computer, for instance, are all sort of, you know, they fit within this broader uh, umbrella definition of dissociation that you've described, but because they're sort of socially desirable, they don't get wrapped up in the same pathological language. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's sort of, you know, there's a risk both of pathologizing what's normal human behavior and of obscuring pathology that happens to be uh, adaptive for other people for you to have. Mm-hmm. Exploit. Exploitative exploitation. Exploitable. Exploitable. Able to be exploited. <laughs> yeah, that's the word. No, I think you're totally right. And it's I don't know if we actually discussed this on an episode that's aired, but I think we've talked about OCD as as sort of like a parallel. Like if you're rich and you have the resources and you can have garages full of Mercedes Benzes or whatever. I don't know what status symbol cars, whatever. <laughs> uh, like that, that hoarding impulse is not stigmatized in the same way that like hoarding newspapers or lizards or whatever. Yeah, the the, the only social accept the only socially acceptable way to hoard newspapers is if you're Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so the. the the powers that be are able to sort of, well, let's just call them what they are. Okay. The reptiles. <laughs> reptiles. <laughs> yes. Yes. Excuse me. I don't want to obscure that. Um, but yeah, so there's the, uh, the, the uniting factor between those two is that they're both in service of capital, right? Like they're both. Right. They both contribute to these institutions of accumulating resources and propagating some bullshit. Yeah, they make you more efficient workers. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, this is something that I think ripples out throughout a lot of how we think about mental health. Is that, you know, there are things which are sort of maladaptive or unhealthy for you to do, but which are great from the perspective of somebody who wants to extract your labor for profit. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, don't have I the guess... ability to say no, or you aren't able to set boundaries, that's fucking great for employers. They love that shit. <laughs> they sort of depend on it. Yeah. And conversely, if you're, ha- if you're, you know, really struggling with something psychologically, but 
it's not interfering with your ability to work, then it basically doesn't exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. But we could we, we could save. Yeah, we could save a fuller conversation on that for the episode when we go to talking to therapists. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. But yeah, so to to get back a little bit to um like the different conceptualizations of dissociation. So clinical psychology tends to view dissociation in one way. And it, and it sort of makes sense for them to focus on the distressing aspects, right? Like that's what people are coming in for and so sure that makes sense but then like for example anthropology tends to look at dissociation in a pretty dramatically different way right so they're looking at things (laughs) much more culturally whereas um the psychological research tends to look at it a lot more individually it's sort of atomizing so um, we're real good at that as a field is making systemic problems individual ones we we excel well i'm trying not to but anyway so like for example in the anthropological world dissociation they're looking at it more in terms of for example uh like possessions i I was gonna say yeah i'm you know speaking in tongues anthropological film examples yeah Mm mm-hmm cultures that do that sort of mm-hmm. yeah that, that's how they practice their spirituality is you know being possessed by people in their culture which yeah. is sort of like a which is essentially a, dis, a dissociative right? experience and something that I have <laughs> gotten in fights with professors about <laughs> well just one in particular is like um the debate over whether or not multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder is like a real condition, right? So that's something that's been sort of controversial in the clinical world about whether that's real or not. And some of the critics of it, their argument is that it's it's an I- iatrogenic condition, which means that this, the narrative or the expectations of what a condition looks like is what shapes it and so that that's so that's why it manifests as it does and i don't necessarily think that's wrong but i don't think that makes it not real right so in our culture we have this narrative we have eve or the three faces of eve or whatever that movie was or or the united states of terra right there's a there's a there's a narrative out there of what multiple personalities looks like and I think that that does manifest really differently than a culture that's maybe more religious and demon possessions are a feasible thing, right? Like there's, right. I think there, there are these similar underlying mechanisms we have. We're working with similar hardware, but then our scripts, our, our cultural narratives shape how that comes out. That doesn't make any of it less distressing or less real. It just, yeah, it just shapes it. Well, and I mean, does that make it, I feel like there's an interesting question there about whether, I don't know, I I would be interested to know what sort of overlap there is. Like what, is it, is it incompatible to have, to hold the view that, to, to sort of take, take a culture that, that has these dissociative episodes 
that manifest in terms of, I mean, I guess religious practice, right? Mm-hmm. Where they practice things like possession while also saying, oh, well, multiple, multiple personality disorder is bogus. That's, I, I is, don't know. Is possession really a religious practice? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, a, like it's, a, it's a religiously tinted phenomenon, mm-hmm. certainly, but right. yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure people make a religious practice of being possessed by demons. Right. Exactly. Right. So there would be like, I, I would think of like, uh, speaking in tongues might be more, or well, yeah. I mean, isn't, that's isn't a that similar, similar phenomenon. I mean, it's working. I assume would be working on the same part of the brain. I mean, like the I, I suppose the, the the quibble, the argument is whether or not these people are acting essentially. Right, right. And I think that's getting to a really important question about dissociation, um, right. at, which is like how much of it is intentional, how much of is invoked right and i think there are varying degrees of intentionality some people will absolutely dissociate because it's way more pleasant than being present in the moment right like how much of the the gaming industry is based on oh my god on like on the willful dissociation of like spending the whole industry hours straight (laughs) right right like it's there is some agency in terms of how much we're dissociating versus how much we're trying not to dissociate. It is mostly automatic, I would say, but you can sort of influence how much it happens or doesn't happen, which is the entire point of treatment, right? <laughs> like we're trying to, there are very good reasons to try to stop dissociating even if it's not necessarily a distressing experience in itself i've had a few clients with complex trauma who really didn't want to stop dissociating because for them it was way less scary to be in their sort of fantasy world than it was to be in what was their real world right like it was it was way less threatening and to come back to that uh uh, it was hard to make a case, you know, um, but but like, I think one of the Listen, go ahead. You should make yourself feel bad on purpose. I'm a doctor. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of a core tenet in therapy. It's true. <laughs> like you got to feel. But you, it's a hard sell, oh like God. you said. Yeah, it's people don't like that. It's not a fun process to like start feeling all your pain that you've been trying to desperately avoid. <laughs> Can't blame anyone. But yeah, so so the one of the reasons that I became really interested in dissociation is that I had noticed just how many of my clients had been dissociating and so they would like come into therapy and not remember anything that we had talked about the session before because they were dissociated the whole time. Actually, Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about some of the different ways that it can manifest, right? So we talked about depersonalization, derealization, reduced awareness, hypnotic states can be conceptualized as dissociation, uh, trances, or an inability to access your feelings. That's a huge one. So uh, that's just masculinity. Yeah, I don't know. That. I don't want to. Is that what are you talking that's about? It's normal. It's normal, as I say, as I slam the phone into the receiver harder and harder. Right. That's just you, just, you just mean being awake, right? That's. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's actually a really interesting point is we had talked about like big T drama and little T drama before. I think there's also a comparable big D dissociation, little D dissociation. And those processes are just those really like subtle and chronic processes of dissociation, I think. And it can essentially cut you off from entire parts of yourself, right? So if you're dissociating from your bodily sensations, you're dissociating from your feelings, and you're you're being taught to do this, then that can profoundly and fundamentally shape your identity and your just sense of self. And you may you may never really regain access to your body or your feelings unless there's a damn good compelling right. reason to do it right um yeah well so i have a, i have a thought i have a question uh do you i mean do you feel like there might be some i mean you in your position as a as a therapist as an almost therapist i'm mm-hmm. not sure how you would classify yourself while mm-hmm. still in school but um but in expanding, at least conceptually, the idea of dissociation, or, or, or like I was saying before, maybe trying to come up with a word or a concept that expands the notion of dissociation to include things that are more familiar, because from a therapeutic standpoint, I mean, I just feel like dissociation is something that is, by its nature, sort of tough to articulate, sort of yeah. tough to talk about. Like, it's, it's, difficult. it's a difficult feeling to be in touch with. Because, because it is uh, it is self preservation. It is done, you know. It happens to us at times of profound stress and anxiety, and it becomes, I mean, it's really by subtle. design, difficult to focus on yeah. y- your state of being in those moments. But, but I think that people are more consciously familiar with things like like they call a flow state, or might mm-hmm. be might have strong memories of of imaginative play as a child or certainly the feeling of you know the credits rolling on a movie and walking out of the theater and feeling really disoriented mm-hmm. like like you are needing to feel grounded a little bit and do you feel like there might be some value in expanding it so that it's uh, j- just to familiarize people with yeah. the feeling like if like if they're more in touch with Mm-hmm. W- with the mental process, like the physiological almost process, psychological yeah. process of dissociating, that it might help them get in touch with that in the more yeah. more stressful moments. Yeah, I absolutely think so. It's a big part of why I conceptualize it that way. And I think it's a lot easier for people to spot it when they right. can spot it in these more normative ways or less distressing ways, I guess. And... There is a relationship between the people who do a lot more of the the more benign dissociation, I'd say, like the absorption, right? Like getting sucked into yeah. a movie or, or a game. They're also more susceptible to other kinds of dissociation. And there is a relationship between higher rates of dissociation and trauma. And I think, as you were saying, like, it's very difficult to spot dissociation when it's happening. I think a lot of people right. might just might not have any idea of what's happening. And it's like just this weird whatever that's 
you know, looming that's just over how him. I get when I'm stressed mm-hmm. out or whatever. That's just, um, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so there, so there's absolutely, I think, utility in being able to to notice when it's happening in more quote positive ways and how it could contribute to mental health problems. I mean, and I think that there might even be, I mean, you know, George and I were sort of jerk, joking about masculinity, but. I mean, I would say, oh, I just get quiet when I'm angry. Mm-hmm. Like, that that very common experience of being out of touch with your emotions is not necessarily... I'm not sure that I would say that it qualifies as, like, capital mm-hmm. D dissociation. Right. But, I, I don't know, it's, it's still along that same spectrum. It's still mm-hmm. in that part of the same pathology. Um, yeah, I th- I like the idea of thinking it as sort of a... A spectrum because it, it is such a, a huge concept it is trying to describe so many different things and i i think that's you know that's why we have sub definitions right with depersonalization derealization etc um yeah i think that to go back to something megan said really early on i think that a lot of i guess the flaws or gaps in our sort of common or popular understanding of dissociation is sort of rooted in the fact that we don't really integrate uh, like complex system theory mm-hmm. into our sense of self. Like most of us just think of the self as a thing, like the one thing mm-hmm. that yeah. we are. Yeah. Right. Instead of seeing it as an aggregate of all of these different sort of interlocking processes, which exist for different reasons and serve different functions, but uh, taken, you know, as a cumulative thing, create this structured perception of continuity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, there's there's the sense that, you know, small d dissociation is basically any uh, lapse or gap or breakdown in the holistic integrity of the complex system of complex systems that is the self. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is that large d dissociation is sort of, it's like a more visible and disruptive breakdown you know, in a way that sort of interferes with what would, I guess, you know, and this is where, like, the capitalism worms its way in, is that big D dissociation is sort of determined by what constitutes contextual disruption in the sense of self. Mm -hmm. You know, when is the part of yourself that you're meant to have access to or be in touch with in this moment not available? Yeah. And this this, this brings me to something that I wanted to talk about uh, when... You know, the internet told us this is what we were talking about today, <laughs> which is the relationship between dissociation and mindfulness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They have. I mean, they have. I was just thinking a minute ago that they have these. I, I don't know. They're sort of yin and yang. I guess. I don't know. Opposite ends of a spectrum, sort of. Like, if if dissociation can be defined by being totally psychologically disconnected from your body. That's sort of what mindfulness is all about, is kind of pulling you back down, mm-hmm. reconnecting. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, as you were speaking, George, it, something that came to mind was, that was really interesting is like, sometimes it's not necessarily dissociation as much as that different parts of us come forward and are more prominent, I suppose. I don't know if that's, if that makes sense. Like, it's not necessarily. Yeah. And, you know, often these things sort of present you know, not as dissociation, which we can understand them as if we think, you know, systematically about our brains, mm-hmm. but as sort of 
shifts in mood or focus. Mm -hmm. Right. Or that different contexts are bringing out different aspects of ourselves. Yeah. But, but yeah, Andrew, I think, like, coming back to the the mindfulness aspect and how it compares, I think the mindful process then is to expand your awareness of yourself in that moment, right? So maybe in one moment, this part of ourself, the, uh, the shrieking, angry, uh, <laughs> wench or whatever, I don't know. That's a part of me. Herodin is the yeah. word you want. Yeah, that's that's it. Like, maybe that's a really important part of me that's coming forward in that context, but can I expand and can I come back to my body and sort of get in touch with some of the other processes that are happening and open myself up to more parts of myself that are all sort of there? And I'd say one of the biggest things with dissociation is that it makes other parts of ourselves inaccessible. I mean, would you say that numbness is another, I don't know if I want to say defining characteristic, but common characteristic of dissociation, that that it could be uh, characterized as a numbing of, of self? Is numbness characteristic of dissociation? There you yeah. go. Thank you, George. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it, that's one kind of manifestation. So, interoception is um that's like our ability to feel our physiological sensation so we're sort of interoception interoception yeah interoception um actually that's when you can tell the top stop spinning without looking yeah yeah um or cultural reference (laughs) that movie's only eight years old now we're so on top of it Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, actually, this might be a, a useful time to talk a little bit about emotions and how they work. Ugh. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get like real nerdy right now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you about my favorite model of emotions. Are y'all into this? I know, I know you are. I, you I, I don't know. You got to tell me what it is first. <laughs> Is it Carly Rae Jepsen? Because if not, I'm walking off the cast right now. <laughs> no. I'll, just, I'll just start dissociating and you can start talking okay. about emotion. That's fine. No. <laughs> well, it's not Carly Rae Jepsen. It's Lisa Feldman Barrett. So, three names. Well, it's got the same number of names. Three, yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. I think it's, <laughs> it works perfectly. So, in her model of emotions, there's four basic ingredients that we all share. So, there's a core affect the interoceptive system, emotional concepts, and social reality. And so core affect is, it's the process by which information about the external environment is like translated into an internal affective state, which sort of manifests as, as sensations, right? So you're, so it's like seeing the bear, and automatically your body is like, fuck that. And it's, you're starting to run away, right? Like the, that's a really automatic process. So you've got the external environment and then your core affect is the immediate reactive response to that. And the interoceptive sy- system is your mind's like ability to perceive those sensations and try and make sense of them. Um, 
So those sensations are like generated. And along with them, we have these cascades of different possible concepts or predictions of what's going to happen next. And that's the emotional concept, right? Like that's your, your, your mind is trying to make sense of what's happening in your body and matching it with your environment. So you see the bear and you feel your, yourself running away and you're like, oh shit. And you know, you're scared, right? So there's a very clear emotional concept for that situation. But it's also like your mind's also sort of comparing it with other possible explanations. Are you like, maybe you, you might've been ready to fight it. Right? Maybe you're like ready to rumble with this bear, or or maybe I'm also there, and you're relieved because you know the bear's going to get me first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, so these emotional concepts are like shaped by our social world, right? We're taught what different emotions are based on how people are perceiving what we're feeling, and and it's it's like this whole muddy process and there's some shared understanding of what different emotions are, but there's also a lot of variation. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the model of emotions that I think is the most useful. Um, <sighs> all right. I did. Yeah. I got hella ped pedagogical today. Um, <laughs> but, um, pedagogy, pedagogy, right. So, with dissociation, I would say the disruption in the interoceptive system, like there's like a disruption in, in, in either that or the emotional concepts. Maybe you don't have language for what it is you're experiencing. And so it's kind of like not experiencing it at all, or it can be like um, a conversion experience. So there's a lot of, a lot of times stress emotional distress all these things get turned into physical disorders or physical symptoms like chronic pain or there's obviously this connection between mind and body and conversion is also considered related to a dissociative process yeah or like if you have a crush on someone and you're a small child and you don't realize it and you just walk up and you pull on another kid's hair Right. Sabrina from third grade. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. Are you going to say more about that, George? <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, I think, I, I think that, you know, the dissociative process, the thing you were talking about, about not having the language to describe a phenomenon uh. and how it gets transmuted into something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's lots of ways that can come up. One is that, you know, you just you're not developmentally far off enough along yet to have like a clear picture of it uh another is that uh you aren't developmentally far along enough yet for it to be socially acceptable mm -hmm. for you to have been told or something or you could be you know living in a social context where the emotions you're feeling are actively suppressed and taboo mm -hmm. and here i would think of say you know for another dated crappy movie reference chris cooper in american beauty mm. yeah you know, who at the end of the movie just sort of tearfully starts trying to make out with a dude after being, you know, exactly the sort of dude who in, you know, a middle class psychodrama would turn out to be having repressed gay feelings for the entire previous, you know, 95% of the movie. Mm -hmm. 
And all of these sort of aggregate into, I think, kind of a, a parallel process to the interoceptive breakdown of not having the tools to integrate or associate the uh, emotional the emotions you're feeling with, you know, sort of your wider sense of self and yourself as a social being. And in this sense, uh, dissociation is almost imposed on you externally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. I, I mean, I think that there's an extent to which that's almost baked into... I, I mean, when you have a culture that does not teach people how to process emotions, then you're sort of setting setting them up for uh, a psychological, a, a persistent state of psychological being, emotional being, where they are unable to process. Mm-hmm. Right? They just are sort of left out to dry with these big feelings and no and and nothing and no, yeah, no way and, to handle that <laughs> and in these contexts dissociation is almost adaptive right yeah, like no, totally uh andrew was talking earlier about just sort of dissociating when he's angry but that's a lot better than a lot of the other ways that men process their anger you know right. like the hulk is a way different movie if he goes don't make me angry you wouldn't notice when i'm angry <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah, well, I think I mean I think I think in the absence of a way to handle emotions, I mean it's it's like it's like you're talking about George, like as a young boy in the absence of of being taught how to process emotions properly, that's when you get the I have this feeling for someone in my class, so I have to go over and pull her hair because I don't know what else because I've seen that's or his that, hair or his hair. <laughs> but well, what I'm saying is that 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 you know I I am having some emotion, but the way that that emotion you know, but the the kinds of emotions I am allowed to express mm-hmm. as a man, having you know, being five years old and looking up at all the men around me, is very limited. But <laughs> like lashing out in anger is one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm gonna get more nerdy again. Going back to the nerd. So, like, with core affect, there's a couple different dimensions in which it's, like, identified or, or categorized. So the first being, like, hedonistic, hedonistic, whatever. I don't know how to say that. Valence. So whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. The second being activation or arousal, whether it arouses you or sort of depresses you physically. And then there are a couple other dimensions domination is one like how the level of sort of agency like active versus passive the main difference between fear and anger for example would be they're both negatively balanced they're both very unpleasant and they're both really activating but dominance in anger you move toward it right you're you're ready to pulverize some dweeb right <laughs> always but always. Some geek. it's some geek and with fear it's you're running away or you're uh submitting or whatever it is so uh, if you're not allowed to submit right like <laughs> if that's culturally inaccessible all fear then sort of gets channeled into anger or or vice versa if you're not allowed to get angry right you know yeah, so I think a really critical piece of mental health is um, people talk about like emotional intelligence or emotional whatever, and and eh, it's a it's a muddy it's a muddy research area. But what we do 
know is emotional granularity is adaptive. And that's, it's like really helpful to be able to differentiate between different states you're experiencing, having a wider vocabulary, uh, more emotional concepts to make sense out of what you're experiencing. And that, that tends to be correlated with resilience, I guess. And so like a lot of people experiencing depression or um, uh, one of the biggest factors with a lot of that is not necessarily being able to tell what it is you're feeling or maybe a lot of people don't necessarily know the difference between feeling sad and anxious right like there's the the sort of tendency to describe anything negative as bad i'm feeling bad yeah just being able to turn to like for example a a feelings chart an emotion chart of like what are different kinds of emotions and how how do they look how do they manifest and just learning how to maybe identify with more granularity with more distinction can be a huge intervention we got one we have one on the fridge yeah <laughs> oh because your wife is a <laughs> a kindergarten teacher I love oh no that. it's actually for me oh awesome even better yeah i've I got i carry one with me too yeah kind of messed up that a kindergarten teacher shacked up with a five-year-old, but <laughs> I don't judge. I do. I only would on judge the inside. <laughs> um, no, Only in terms of my emotional maturity. <laughs> but yeah, to get back to the dissociation stuff, emotion, like... Well, I mean, but I was... I mean, I think that's also... I think it speaks a little bit to what I was saying earlier about the, the value in... in having an expanded vocabulary to to deal with something like dissociation mm-hmm. like the the wider that palette is the the more able people are to articulate their specific experience with it mm-hmm. you know? yeah the, like like the, these phenomena are sort of fundamentally unmentionable outside right. of the pathological context yeah. right mm-hmm. you know and again it's sort of that thing of, of what I was saying about how you know, if you are an adolescent boy, the number of acceptable, expressible emotions is fairly limited, which means every emotion you have, no matter how wide the spectrum of emotion is, has to be funneled down to these few things. Mm-hmm. And and I think the same sort of thing can work with trying to articulate your experience with dissociation, which is mm-hmm. that, again, we have this wide experience with our bodies and our minds and the way that they fit together. But as George said, if if the pathological clinical context of dissociation are the only vocabulary we have for it, mm-hmm. that it's sort of the only way that phenomenon can make it make itself known, and and that's sort of unfortunate. That's really yeah. it, it pushes you into that pathological space. Right, right. I totally agree. It's interesting. Um, I hadn't really noticed how much I dissociated until I started researching dissociation. And so, like, just getting a better sense of what was happening really pretty profoundly shifted my ability to be able to ground and come back when I wanted to or felt like it was important to. Yeah. So, actually, I I wonder if it's useful to talk a little bit about the difference between dissociation and peritraumatic dissociation. Definitely. I don't know what the second one is, but I want to hear about it. Yeah, so (laughs) peritraumatic dissociation is a dissociation that happens during a trauma. 
like simultaneously as sort of a reaction to the trauma. Um, <laughs> what's that giggle about? <laughs> um, do you really want to know? Uh, if you want, if you want to tell us, I'm always interested to understand your oh, I, <laughs> reaction. I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking about. Um, so last year, in the middle of last year, I went to, I, I was having a stomachache, right? And I, I went to the emergency room because I couldn't really make it stop. And it turned out that I needed to get my gallbladder taken out. Mm. So I had, um, I had, you know, a, sort of a laparoscopic gallbladder removal surgery. And the surgery went fine, except um, I lost a lot of blood in the operating, like in the, during the operation. And they had to, like, hook up an IV. But for some reason, like, my veins had all collapsed and stuff. And so they ended up having to, you know, cut an IV into my thigh. And before that, before they'd done it, I woke up. So I sort of woke up to them cutting my thigh open. And, you know, I sort of, I was thinking, I, I could very concretely think of this as some, like, like, I was aware of it in the moment as almost neutrally watching it happen to someone else, mm -hmm. you know? And so, like, that was, you know, that was why I... When you mentioned paratraumatic dissociation, that was what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, one in particular that I remember happening. <laughs> and I, I was, my mom had said something real shitty to me, and I'm not, I don't particularly feel like recounting it entirely, but um, I remember her saying it and like just, immediately feeling like I was in a movie and and like my first thought was oh shit I'm dissociating <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of stayed with that for a little bit longer versus like listening to what she had to say and then I was like oh this is a really interesting experience listening to my mom be an asshole at me like it's a movie this is like a lot more pleasant <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it's got extremely high hedonistic valence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so the nature of trauma so not everybody experiences violence or or whatever might be considered a trauma as trauma because not everybody is necessarily like overwhelmed. One of the critical components of trauma is that it's overwhelming or that it's disruptive in in a way that that it's like sort of psychologically disruptive or it's it violates our sense of self or reality or whatever so peritraumatic dissociation when that happens in that moment it can sort of like set off that process and make it more common so that maybe later on when we're thinking about that incident we maybe dissociate a little again in a similar way and we might not be able to access how it impacted us in other ways so like if if it felt like a movie it can be a lot harder to feel the affect that it might have like the impact it had on your actual like physical well-being right like if you don't have access to the the feelings of the sensations like it can be it can be very difficult to reintegrate that information into our sense of self or our uh, our memories or and that's right. what can make that's like what makes ptsd stick in a lot of ways is yeah. that in i was gonna say 
I, I was going to say, Megan, it sounds like you're describing a kind of stress that occurs <laughs> post-trauma. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and it's that the difficulty reintegrating that experience into your sense of self or your life or whatever. And maybe your identity has was violated if, for example, you think of yourself as like a a powerful man and you were victimized in a way and your inability to reconcile being victimized with your previous identity of being a strong, independent dude, that could be part of a big process of what sticks, what makes it so hard for you to deal with the consequences of having that experience, right? And so, like, have, go ahead. Uh, just that I, I was saying, I mean, if, if I can keep banging the drum, mm-hmm. I've been drinking sort of banging the whole time I feel like that's sort of the that's part of what makes it so, so tricky right I mean we've been talking about dissociation as a sort of a defense mechanism right as mm-hmm. an adaptive trait or as an adaptive way of just dealing with life but but by its nature it's sort of pulling you away from something that you need to be dealing with mm-hmm. yeah, like, it, yeah. Like, like you said it sort of makes it I, I don't know it's something that by 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 definition essentially makes you unable to remember the thing that you need to be remembering and integrating right right and i th- and i think that that again is i feel like that's another reason it might be important to try to start conceptualizing of dissociation in this more in this broader way you know the, the more the more in touch with the feeling of dissociating mm-hmm. you are the more able you are to to look at those situations retrospectively Mm -hmm. and to integrate some of the experience. I mean, it's like you said, with, with the experience with your mom, you know, like you sort of, something clicked in you for whatever reason. And you were able to kind of take a step away and, and see yourself dissociating. And, and it sounds like you actually now have a very strong memory of it Mm -hmm. rather than rather, rather than it being this very tough sort of ephemeral high emotion memory like it's pretty fully integrated like you can well, talk about it and <laughs> well e- the memory side of it was sort of emphasized but i think the physical affect side like the the emotion yeah. that it brought forward was dampened by that experience and probably that was fine like in that moment i didn't necessarily <laughs> need to feel that overwhelming right. sense of like dread and whatever contempt um <laughs> but having understood what it what i had went through i have made pretty intentional efforts to try to sit with the feelings that are associated with the long pattern of of, of history we are, have. You, are you trying to say that wasn't an isolated incident with your mother <laughs> is that what you're suggesting <laughs> that sounds like another episode That's, yeah we can have a whole other episode on that um a Mother's Day episode. Yeah. yeah. Oh, delightful. But um, another reason I think it is really helpful to have a, a broader understanding of dissociation is I think it plays out in really important ways culturally and as a society, like, politically. One thing I had noticed after the election, a lot of us had noticed this, was the way that... Um, <laughs> Like the really common reaction to sort of uh, fall into sort of the fantastical response to Trump being elected, like 
turning to Harry Potter and Well, that was also just because that was the only book any of those people had ever read. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, well yeah, but I do think there was also a whole lot of like fantasy as a coping mechanism. Like, oh, maybe if I don't know, what's the fucking West Wing? Uh longing for the goddamn West Wing days or whatever as right. if that was ever a real or be good yep. but like the the sort of well, right the, that, the the longing for the explicable right right or but i think a lot of it is like meeting the aversive with fantasy or escaping and uh, because that's a lot easier than facing the problem and dealing with it and acknowledging what it means for our world right like it's yeah, and, and the fantasy creates this alternate structure, which even after you've sort of reintegrated a bit, you can just inhabit instead, mm -hmm. right? So where yeah. uh, what started out as an inability to process sort of became a principled refusal to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, this is something else I wanted to bring up when I found out the internet was telling us to talk about dissociation <laughs> today. Megan, talk to me about irony. Oh, irony. That stuff, huh? Oh. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you? Oh, goodness. Oh, um, damn, that feels like it could be its whole series of episodes. But I, I mean, I absolutely think that irony as a, uh, I guess, a rhetorical coping mechanism. Oh, yeah, I think it can, I, I would consider it dissociative in some ways it can be for sure like especially if it's like rigid right like i i like if you can't turn it off yeah yeah like yeah. i i absolutely do not categorically disavow irony i use that shit all the time i love that shit i i, I categorically disavow irony but <laughs> i do it ironically uh, wow i don't even High know how to stuff. process that shit on naughty by nurture <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think there's, um, a pervasive pattern in some of our leftist movements, particularly online, probably primarily online is the, the irony bro. And like, yeah. it's very hard to organize ironically. It, yeah. 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 That complete unwillingness to ever be vulnerable or earnest and, uh, just to to cope with everything at an ironic distance is to sort of refuse to confront the real pain i think in some ways it, it can help to confront pain right like it can be it can help us to expand our awareness of something that's painful or like a a problem in our society but once your awareness is expanded and you're you're it's like on your radar if that's the only way you're dealing with it, if that's the only coping mechanism you have, A, that's probably impeding your ability to actively deal with it in in a oh, meaningful certainly. way. But B, well, no, just A. <laughs> I think, I mean, if I can, I think, I think spe um, specifically in the case of the sort of irony bro stereotype of exceedingly online dudes it is a way to 
express an understanding of society to, to, to express an understanding of and distaste with the state of the world mm-hmm. the state of society but also to not have to confront and maintain a traditional masculine identity in a certain way like to to adhere to the precepts of masculinity which state that feelings are bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that uh-huh. feelings must be con- must be controlled oh, at all times and irony is a heck of a heck of a way to control feeling because you are constitutionally incapable of letting anyone get a read on your real feelings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know you can deflect any interest in your in your feelings or deflect maybe even any introspection in your own feelings yeah yeah because that requires like actually feeling them and fuck that That vulnerability and you have to both feel them and admit you feel them (laughs) like in front of people Uh -uh. (laughs) (laughs) and it's a non-starter and i mean i'm I'm not saying that this is i i I, well i mean i hesitate to maybe put it this way but i don't necessarily blame people for that because it's such a deeply deeply embedded part of masculinity i mean it's really it's like foundational to the premise of Mm -hmm. traditional masculinity (laughs) i blame them fuck those guys (laughs) well sure but we could we could develop that point more in the masculinity episode yeah yeah because there's i have so many things swimming in my head that yeah yeah we'll save that for the masculinity episode but i mean but just that it's i mean it's maybe a very conscious form of what we're talking about but but it is it is a dampening mm-hmm. of feeling it is a I, I would say that when you encounter someone or, or when you know, maybe you yourself out there listener are <laughs> in a state of mind in a state of being a state of feeling where you you can't resist that ironic impulse like you literally can't like you can't stop yourself from doing it you can't mm-hmm. it's it's so second nature it's such the default mode then I mean, I think it maybe does fall along the spectrum a little bit yeah. of what we're talking about. I do. Yeah. I mean, any coping mechanism, there are going to be contexts where it's functional and helpful, but if it's relied upon rigidly is where we tend to get into huge problems, right? Like, yeah. if that's your only coping is mechanism, you're, you're sort of, it's not necessarily, well, you're probably kind of fucked, like, socially. Like, is, that's really... You're talking about me, personally. Uh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, well, like, emotionally, you're not really growing, but also you're, like, hurting people around you. It, it Im- interferes with your ability to connect with people, because vulnerability is sort of critical to that. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Also, and I think this point is sort of understated in these contexts, it's just so fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I agree. <laughs> yeah, like the the ironic racism, the ironic sexism for those of us who are sort oh of experiencing God. it. On the other end, it's like it's just as fucking tiring as sometimes it's funny. Sometimes if it's done in a fresh and new way that I haven't seen before, I mean, it is possible. It just but I mean, it's not. God, it's many, hard though, because how many, how many all of the ways that people could be ironically sexist or racist are ways that people are already really yes. sexist and right. racist on purpose. Yes. How many? How many times over how many decades have we had this conversation about the inability to distinguish mm-hmm. between ironic and non-ironic sexism or racism, and how because it's impossible to distinguish, mm-hmm. 
uh, right. effectively they're they the are the same, same thing. Yep. Like, they're the same fucking thing. And that's where I think, like, knowing your audience is critical here. Like, right. if you if you and one of your really close friends, you know there's no ambiguity in there, right. in that joke. Like, that's a totally different thing than somebody making the ironically sexist or racist joke on a huge platform completely different right right there's like a difference and we say this so that people who listen don't try and figure out if they've cracked the ironic sexism ironic sexism joke in our mentions (laughs) right (laughs) exactly but I mean, I think that it is sort of that that's the the critical difference between friends joking around on Twitter or on a podcast or whatever, and like a, f- a famous stand up comedian in front of tens of millions of people. Are doing you it. suggesting that <laughs> we won't have an audience of tens of millions of people eventually? Is that no? I, I'm just saying. That, oh no, we I'm will. Just saying that just, once it's... we do, we will be actually sexist and actually racist oh. at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more that when. When we have an audience of tens of millions of people, it will be because we personally have solved sexism. Oh. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. That's going to kick ass. President right? Naughty by Nurture. <laughs> Delightful. Um, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of hitting on most of the aspects of dissociation. I think so. Folks, shoot us your questions. I think we have. We love those. Do we have? A, we have Twitter, and you can always DM. We do. We're at yeah. NBN. Feel free to. Yep, our social media intern is hard at work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we also have an email address. Yes, we do. What is that? Uh, our email address is nbncast at gmail dot com. Oh. Yeah. So, if there are questions, follow up questions, things that you want us to cover, please lucrative endorsement deals yes and we are hard at work trying to get our cat our cast on itunes yes for those who have been asking which i assume is like in the thousands by now oh of the people easily. asking yeah yeah if you if you assume that everyone you know smart and conscientious enough to ask us is worth about 250 normal people <laughs> then yeah i think that works out yeah what we're saying is we love you so maybe should we do a quick grounding exercise? Sure. In considering our uh, our topic today, dissociation. Hopefully, I don't know, maybe check to see if you've dissociated at all during this episode. Possible. Totally possible. Hopefully your face isn't tingling so, too much. So to be clear, when, when you say a grounding exercise, this isn't going to be like the time you told me to rub my socks on the carpet and touch the doorknob, right? <laughs> Um, no, no, it won't be like that. Because I don't want to fall for that a fourth time. <laughs> Fool me thrice. Um, no, it'll be... <laughs> okay, quick grounding exercise. Here we go. Okay, so take a moment to notice your surroundings. Remember where you are. Take a few moments to notice the sounds around you. Maybe some birds chirping or keys clacking away or maybe even just the sound of your own breath.
take a few moments to notice your physical sensations, if you can. See if there are any physical sensations that immediately come to your mind or that you can immediately identify. Gently scan through your body. Start with your toes. Wiggle your toes. Or feel your feet on the floor. Or feel your seat in the chair. Or if you're walking somewhere, you can notice the, the feeling of the movement of walking or whatever your body's doing. And just take a few moments to be present in your body. Remember that you have one. Because it's easy to forget sometimes. Well, okay. Now you can return to whatever it is you were doing before. Which was listening to us, but we're going to stop that. We're going to stop talking now, so you can't do that anymore. And thank you for tuning in. Yeah. yeah, from all of us here at Naughty by Nurture, I'm George. I'm Andrew. And I'm Megan. And that's where the music goes. <laughs> Wonderful. <sighs>